And we'll, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to uh, the letter of First John. First John, our text this morning is going to be First John chapter two, and we're going to be looking at verses seven through seventeen. First John two seven through seventeen. As you're turning there, it's been a few weeks since we uh, looked at First John chapter one uh, through the first part of chapter two. So I want to take just a minute uh, to do a little bit of a reminder, a little bit of refresh on what it is that we've seen so far from this letter. So first, if you remember, uh, 1 John, this is a letter that is written by the Apostle John. And so this is written by uh, who he proclaims himself to be uh, the most beloved disciple. Uh, so he kind of calls himself the favorite, but if you're the one that's writing the book of the Bible, you can call yourself uh, what you want, I guess. And so he is the favorite disciple of Jesus, the most beloved disciple of Jesus, uh, he wrote several other books in the New Testament as well. So he wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he also wrote the book of Revelation. So uh, same guy, same author uh, for all of those different books. Now in particular with this letter, if you remember, it was written to a group of churches uh, believed to be in the region of Ephesus. So around uh, the, the city of Ephesus where John lived uh, after the ministry of Jesus and he pastored there. Uh, so he wrote this letter to a group of churches in that area of Ephesus, and he wrote it for a couple of different reasons. The first reason was that he, he wrote this letter to refute a group of people who claimed to be believers. They claimed to be Christians, uh, yet uh, they left the church and they, uh, they denied some of the core and essential beliefs that we as Christians hold. Okay, so they denied these essential things, things like Jesus being the Son of God, right? They denied those things, and so they leave the church, uh, and then they go traveling around that different area, uh, speaking in different churches and different places and, and spreading these false teachings. So part of the reason why the Apostle John is, is writing this letter is to refute those false teachers. Another reason that he wrote the letter was to encourage the true believers who remained in the church. So there were those uh, false teachers who left out of the church, and then there are the, the true believers who remained within the church, uh, who were living life together in the context of the local body there in Ephesus. And he wrote this letter to encourage them in, in their faith, to warn them of those false teachers, but then to encourage them that they held to the true gospel. And so since they held to that true gospel, they weren't to leave that gospel and abandon the faith like those false teachers. As we read through these 10 verses this morning, uh, have that in your mind. Have those two purposes in your mind because you'll be able to see pretty clearly John doing both of those things uh, even in these 10 verses that we're going to read this morning. So with that background fresh in our minds, let's uh, read our text for this morning. So I ask if you're able, uh, would you stand with me in the honor of reading God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 17. <clears throat> Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother 
abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Now I write to you, children, because you know the Father. And I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And in, in the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning with thankful hearts because we are not a people who deserve to hear a word from you. We're a people who deserve punishment from you. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion, Father, uh, we deserve punishment and death and hell because we have rebelled against you. But Father, in your mercy and in your grace and in your kindness to us, that's not what you give us. You show us mercy. Father, you speak to us. And we realize this morning that, that, that these words from the Apostle John are words from you. Father, they're words that we don't deserve, but they're words that you give us out of your grace and out of your mercy and out of your kindness to us. So Father, I pray in these next few moments as we hear from your word, Lord, I pray that we would have our mind's attention on you, that we we would set our heart's affection on You. And Father, that we would take these words that You have given to us through the Apostle John and we would seek to push these things down into deep, fertile soil in our hearts so that we can live and obey You more. We pray these things for our good and for the glory of Your Son, Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Well, Valentine's Day is approaching us very, very quickly. <clears throat> so, fellas, men, this is your public service announcement. You've got nine days left, so put it down in your calendar. Go ahead and mark it in your phone. You are now without excuse. Uh, don't forget it. Valentine's Day uh, is just around the corner. Now, most of us guys, we, we realize that Valentine's Day is that day that's invented by the Hallmark Company um, <clears throat> in which we celebrate love. Right? We celebrate love. Well, some of you remember the little Valentine's Day game. Perhaps some of you have even played this game where you take a rose right, and you pull a petal, one petal at a time, off of this rose while you say, she loves me, she loves me not. She loves me, she loves me not. You keep doing this until that one last fateful petal remains. We'll call it the providential petal to tell you whether or not the, the affection that you have for your love is reciprocated or if it's not. Right? It's that one last petal to tell you whether your affections and your desires are mutual or not. 
Uh, the theme of love is all throughout the Bible. This, this idea that we are to love one another, it's all throughout the Bible, but it is very, very important in the letter of 1 John. 51 times, 51 times in this short little five-chapter letter, the word love is used. 51 times in five chapters, John uses the word love. It's, it's more than any other word in the entire book. He uses this word love. Now, one time out of that 51 times, one time he uses it negatively. Not to love. And that's in our verses this, this morning. That one time that he talks about love in negative terms, it's, it's in our text this morning. So this morning we're going to see this is the main idea, I think, of this passage. If I could summarize all ten of these verses down into to two sentences, this is what I think John is teaching us here. He's telling us that as confessing Christians, we must be marked by self-disciplined, spirit-empowered love for our brothers instead of love for the world. I'll put it another way. Another way to say that is that your love for the world is incompatible with your love for God. Love for the world and love for God cannot exist at the same time. They're incompatible. And that brings us to our first point. We're going to tease this idea out and see how John uh, teaches us this. There are three main points to the sermon this morning. And our first point is this, that our confession to believe in Christ is tested by our love. Our confession to believe in Christ is tested by our love. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago when we studied chapter 1 and chapter 2 verse through verse 6, John has been laying out these different tests, right? these different kind of litmus tests that we use to test the genuineness of our faith. Right? Whether or not our faith and our confession to believe in Jesus is real or not. Right? He's laying out these different tests. So, uh, in chapter 1, verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 2, uh, this test that he lays out for us is that uh, we, our confession to believe in Christ is tested by our attitude towards our sin. So the way that you view your sin and the way that you understand your own personal struggle with sin tells you a whole lot about how genuine your faith in Jesus actually is. Right? And then in, in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, we saw the second test that was laid out that our confession to believe in Christ is tested by our obedience to God's command. So whether or not you hear God's commands and what He expects of you from the Scripture, if you obey those things or if you don't obey those things, right? that, that goes a long way to give you a test as to whether or not your faith in Christ is, is actually genuine. Well, here in the first part of these verses, we see another one of those tests in verses 7 through 11, we see yet another test that, that John gives us to be able to test whether or not our faith in Christ is genuine. And here he says that our faith is tested by our love. By our love. So our faith is tested by our attitude towards sin. It's tested by obedience. And now we see it's tested by love. So before we get to this command itself, John, John has a few things to say about it. He's got a few things to say about this command to kind of qualify it and put it in context. Look down in verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> verses 7 through 8. In verse 7, John says, I'm writing to you no new command, but it's an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. 
the old commandment is the word that you have heard. So this command that John is giving us, this test that John is giving us to, to test our faith by our love, this is not a new thing. This is not something that he's kind of making up on the spot and just saying, you know, okay, one other test is maybe how you love one another, right? That, that's not what John's doing. It's, it's not something that he's making up. It's not something new. This, in fact, is a very, very old commandment. This is an old test, right? It's old in the sense that he says that you've had it from the beginning. Now, what John means there is this command to love one another is something that we've known from the beginning. That is, that they've known since the time they became Christians. When, when they heard the gospel and they believed the gospel and they turned away from their sins and they trusted in Christ, at that moment, they've known this commandment. John has been teaching them this old commandment. It's not something new that's getting sprung on them. It's not some new command that now they have to obey. This is an old commandment. It's also old in the sense that we're commanded to love one another in this way all the way back in the Old Testament law. So you think about the Ten Commandments, right? And how the Ten Commandments are divided up, right? That we're to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like it that we're to love our neighbor as ourself. Listen to Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 through 18. It says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Right, this, this is an old commandment. John's saying here, I'm not telling you something that you don't already know. This is, this is old stuff. But look down in verse 8. This old commandment, this, this age-old commandment is also new. It's a new commandment in some sense, right? He, he says there in verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Right? So this commandment to love one another is simultaneously old and new. Now, how does that work? It seems to be like, an obvious contradiction, right? Something can't be old and new. Uh, it, it, it's impossible. Well, what John means by this, and this idea that this is a new commandment, is he's taking this teaching that he heard directly from Jesus, and he's applying it to these people's situation. Now, what do I mean by that? Write this down in your notes. Write this passage down in your notes. John 13, 34. John 13, 34. Pastor Matt read it for us uh, to begin our service this morning. In John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you. It's a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And here's the new part. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So this command is new in the sense that Jesus has come into this world and he lived a perfect life that none of us could possibly ever live. And he died on the cross and he took the punishment for our sins that all of us deserved. And he rose again from the dead, defeating our sin and defeating our death 
So for those of us who place our faith in Jesus and trust in Him and turn away from our sins, we can have new life. This new life that begins at the moment of faith. And since we have new life that begins at the moment of faith, since when we turn from our sins and put our faith in Jesus, we begin to walk in the light as He is in the light, we then are able to obey this age-old command in a brand new way. We're able to obey this command in the way that Jesus obeyed this command. We're able to love one another with the love with which Christ loved each one of us. Now that is new. That is different. Christ fulfilled that age-old command from the Old Testament that we're to love one another. How did He fulfill it? He fulfilled it by coming and living and dying and redeeming for Himself an undeserving, unlovable people. He showed them that self-denying, self-sacrificial kind of love that they didn't deserve. But He loved them that way anyway. And He showed them that grace. And Jesus says that type of love, that type of love, that's the love that you're to have for one another now. That's the new part of the, that's the newness of the command. So for those of us who believe in Jesus, who, who confess to know him, we have new life in him because he's loved us in this way. And so this is a new commandment in the sense that we are now to love one another just like Jesus loved us. That's why John says here in verse 8, that it's true in Him and it's true in you. What he's saying there is that this commandment is shown to be true. It is put on display in all of its glory and all of its trueness, first and foremost in Him, being Jesus. Right? He displayed this kind of love for us, and now it's to be true in you as well. The trueness of this new command, this age-old command, is to be displayed in you as well. It's to be shown to be true. So it's a way to say that in evidence of a changed heart, a new heart of the one who believes in Jesus is lived out in love. It's lived out in love for one another. So that's how he qualifies the command, but what about the command itself? That, that brings us to the command itself. And the way John does this is he, he puts up two different people. He gives us two different kind of hypothetical people uh, that, that he puts up on display uh, to illustrate this command. First, there's a person who confesses to love Jesus. Right? They confess with their mouth that they believe in Jesus and that they love Him. They say that they are in the light, is what John says. Whoever confesses that he is in the light, yet this person does not love his brother. That's the first person. The person who confesses that they believe in Jesus, that they're in the light, yet they're... they're Confession is not lived out in love. That's the first person. The second person is the person who confesses to know Jesus. And notice what John says about this person. He doesn't say he's in the light, but this person abides. He lives in the light. So there's a big difference here between these two people. One says he's in the light. The other one lives in the light. Right? He abides in the light and he does love his brother. So that first person, the person who confesses to know Jesus and, and to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, but he doesn't obey this command to love his brother, 
Look at what John says about him. He says, he's still in darkness. He walks and he lives in darkness. He says he's lost. He doesn't know where he's going. And he's blind. He's blind to his own sin. So not only are they still in darkness, but the darkness also lives inside of them. They confess to be in the light, but they're still in darkness. Church family, it is entirely possible. It is, an, it is entirely possible for you to say that you are a Christian and yet to not have a new heart that's shaped by the gospel. That is entirely possible for you to confess that you're a Christian, but to have a heart that's not shaped by the gospel whatsoever. And John is teaching us here, and he's warning us here in this passage that our confession is no good if it is not lived out in love for one another. It's no good. So it is entirely possible for you to say that you love Jesus and yet deny Him by your actions. That's a possibility. That first person, it's a, it's a possibility. I've heard it said before that you proclaim exactly who you are by your conduct and behavior. You guys ever heard that before? Right? You proclaim exactly who you are by your conduct and behavior. Maybe you've heard it this way. This is another way to say the same thing. That your actions speak louder than your words. That what you do says more about you than what you say about yourself. Right? I think that's true here. I think that's true here. If you confess to be a Christian and yet you do not love one another, your confession is a false confession. It's no good. It's no good. But John says here that there's another kind of person. There's the person who confesses to know Christ and then that confession is lived out. It's lived out in love for other Christians, for other people. And John says that it's these people, it's that second person who has the true and genuine faith. Their faith in love is genuine because they know how much they have been loved by Christ. And then they go and they extend that same type of love for other people that Christ has extended to them. So before we move to our next point, I want to take just a second here and think through a couple of practical things about what it means to love one another. What does it mean to love one another? You know, oftentimes when we say love, we have these ideas and these images of maybe some mushy-gushy feelings, you know, that we have that we just want to hug and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, that's not at all what John means when he talks about love. It's not at all what Jesus mean when he meant when, in John 13 where he said that you're to love one another. Well, here's what he means. If we're going to love one another, that means first and foremost, we must desire one another's holiness above all else. The way that you love one another is that you desire your brother or your sister's holiness above all else. That's exactly the type of love that Jesus had for us. How do I know that? Well, because He lived and He died and He rose again so that we might be made holy. Right? That's the message of the Gospel. That, that Jesus came and He lived in our place and He died in our place and He rose again. Why? So that we might be made sons and daughters of God. So that we might be forgiven of our sins and be made holy. So if we're going to love one another with the love that Christ has loved us with, that means first and foremost, we must desire each other's holiness above all else. Even above each other's happiness. 
we must desire each other's holiness. Second, if we're to love one another, that means that we need to be very quick to forgive one another. We need to be very quick to forgive one another. You know, there is not one sin that you cannot commit against me that I have not done ten times worse. It's true. There's not one sin that you can commit against another brother or sister in this room in which they have not done ten times worse. We've all been guilty of sin. And we've all been forgiven by Christ of so much that we should be very quick to forgive one another. It's true. It's the true Christian that realizes that Christ loved him so much in spite of his unworthiness and he is prepared to love others who are also unworthy with that same type of self-sacrificial, spirit-empowered love and then to rejoice in the common salvation that we share in Christ Jesus. That's what it means to love one another. It's not some emotional, kind of romanticized feeling. That's, that's not at all what Jesus has in mind. right? It's desire one another's holiness, to be quick to forgive one another's sins, and to rejoice in the common salvation that we have in Christ. That's exactly what it means to love one another. Well, that brings us to point two in the text. Our second point, there's a pastoral affirmation here. John gives a pastoral affirmation that we are to remember whose we are. Remember whose you are. Now, before we get too deep into this section, I want to take a minute to answer a couple of quick questions about this section. So if you just read through our text this morning from verse one all, or verse 17 all the way down, or verse 7 all the way down to 17, uh, this middle section here, verses 12 through 14, are going to seem really, really random. If you just kind of read through the whole thing really quickly and you don't think about it, it seems like John has just kind of randomly taken these two verses here and just squished them right in between, uh, almost like it's a digression or like it's kind of a side point uh, that he's trying to make. And I don't think that's at all what he's doing. I think that, that John is very deliberate about putting these verses right here. And so I want to bring that out by answering two questions. One is, why is this section here? Why is this section of these greetings uh, here? Well, if you remember a couple of weeks ago when we looked at chapter 1, you'll remember that John begins this letter really, really quickly. Right? There's no kind of formal uh, address like you see in a lot of Paul's letters. There's no, you know, uh, to the church at Ephesus, you know, from the Apostle Paul, the bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the church at Ephesus, you know, I bring you greetings. There's none of that. John just dives straight in, chapter 1, verse 1. He goes straight to his point. Right? And so I think that part of the reason why John puts these verses, these greetings here uh, to these different folks is because it's kind of a delayed, uh, it's a delayed greeting section. It's, he's putting it here in this section uh, to, to give you, um, you know, the reason why it is that he's writing this letter to begin with. So the purpose of the whole letter, I think, can be, found, can be found right here. So that's the why, right? It's a delayed greeting uh, to let his readers know why he's writing. But question two is, who in the world is John writing to here? In, in, these, in these three verses, there's some confusion here over exactly what it is, that, who it is that he's writing to. <laughs> now, there's a couple different ways that, that people have interpreted these texts. And so I'm going to lay these out there really quick, and then I'm going to tell you which one I think is right, 
Uh, and then if you disagree with me, uh, feel free to come up to me after me and tell me why you think you're wrong, okay? Or why I'm wrong, not why you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> and then I'll tell you why I think you're wrong, you know, in love. Uh, so three different, three different ways that you can look at this here in these two verses, okay? The first way that a lot of people look at this is they're saying, well, obviously, the Apostle John is writing to three different distinct groups of people within the church. Look down at verse 12. You've got little children, right? Then in verse 13, you've got fathers. And about halfway through verse 13, you've got young men or youth. And then again, he repeats it. The last part of verse 13, here you have it again. Children. Verse 14, you've got fathers. And then midway through verse 14, you've got again young men or youth. So what a lot of folks say is he's addressing three different kinds of people and he's addressing them twice. Okay, And the, and the way that you know, he addresses them twice, if you look at the first uh, kind of section where he says little children, fathers, young men. Uh, all of those, that verb there to write, that he's writing, that's in the present tense. He's saying, I'm writing these things to you, little children. I'm writing these things to you, fathers. I'm writing these things to you, youth. And then there, halfway through verse 13, he switches and it goes to the past tense. I wrote these things to you, little children. I wrote these things to you, fathers. I wrote these things to you, youth. And so people will say he's addressing three different groups there and he's addressing them twice. Right? Same group, two times. Uh, and those three groups can be interpreted a couple of ways. The first way is literal age groups. So, of course, the church is made up of people from all different ages. And so uh, they say that the Apostle John is first writing to the little children who are a part of the church. And then secondly, you know, he's writing to the literal fathers who are in the church. And then lastly, he's writing to the literal youth, those who aren't quite is advanced in years. And he addresses them twice. Now they all say, they'll also say that, well, perhaps these three distinct groups can be interpreted spiritually, not just you know physically. So when he says, I write to you little children, he's talking about those in the church maybe who haven't been believers for very long. Right? They're, they're young in their faith. They're spiritually speaking, they're little children. And then when he addresses the fathers, he's talking about people who, you know, who have been uh, more mature believers who've been walking in the faith for a little bit longer, and then so on and so forth. So that's one interpretation. He's talking to three different distinct groups. He talks to them twice, and those three distinct groups can either be interpreted uh, literally uh, as far as their age breakdown, or they can be interpreted spiritually. The second way that this can be interpreted is that the Apostle John is, is addressing everybody. He's addressing one group. But within that one group right? There are three different categories that can apply to every single person in that group. So here's an example. We've got Brother Leroy Lewis over here. Okay, we've got Leroy Lewis. Leroy Lewis is a faithful member of this church. Uh, he loves the Lord. He's been forgiven of his sin. And in a sense, Leroy is a child in the faith. He's a child in the faith in the sense that he has been begotten by God. He's a child of God. Right? He repented of his sins, he put his faith in Jesus, and he becomes a child of God. So in that sense, Leroy is a child in the faith. Well, in another sense, Leroy is a father in the faith. Right? Leroy is a father in the faith in that he knows that God is his heavenly father. And he has that correlation of that relationship with God as being his heavenly father. Perhaps Leroy has even shared his faith with, with other people, and those other people have become Christians, and so Leroy has some children in the faith, kind of like the Apostle Paul addressed uh, his disciple Timothy, right? You're my child in the faith. So in that sense, Leroy is also a child in the faith, but he's also a father in the faith. 
Well, he's also a youth in the faith in the sense that Leroy's faith is strong. Right? Leroy's faith, he, he fights against temptation and the Word of God abides in him and, and he's, he's conquering the evil one when he faces temptation and sin. So that's kind of the second interpretation that, that John's talking about everybody and that those three categories apply to every single individual within that group. That's the second way that this can be interpreted. The third way, and I think this is the right way to understand it, is that John's talking to everybody and then he addresses everyone and then he breaks everyone down into two distinct groups. So here's why I think this is right. John says two times in verse 12 and then in the last part of verse 13, he addresses everyone as little children. I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven. That's, that's true of everyone in the church. Our sins are forgiven. That's a common thing that we all share. That's what makes us Christians, that our sins are forgiven in Christ. We have that common salvation. Now this term, little children, is a term that John uses constantly in all of his writings, not just in 1 John, but in all of his writings, to address his church. It's a, it's a term of endearment that he uses when he's talking to everyone. Uh, we saw it in John 13. He addressed everyone as little children. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. We saw in chapter 2, verse 1, he says little children, and he's talking there about the whole church. We'll see it again a bunch more times in chapter 2, verse 18. In chapter 2, verse 28. In chapter 3, verse 1. In chapter 3, verse 7. In chapter 5, verse 2. In chapter 5, verse 21. This word, little children, John uses constantly over and over and over again to talk about everybody in his church. It's a term of endearment. And then within that broad category of little children, everybody, he breaks it down into two distinct groups. Fathers, who I believe are literally people who are older in the faith, that, that you know, they're older. And then young ones, youth, those who are younger. And those two categories are described in their particular ways. I think that's the best way to understand how, who it is that John's talking about here. I think it's the most consistent way to understand it with the rest of this letter and the rest of all of John's writings. But no matter how you interpret it, no matter how, which one of those things you think is right, the purpose for which John is writing is undeniable. He is writing here to pastorally encourage them and affirm them in their faith. That's why he's writing to these people. So thus far, we've seen that, that John makes some pretty sobering remarks about the genuineness of our faith. As he's laying out these tests, man, some of them are really, really hard. And if we are really honest with each other uh, and we look at those tests, we're going to have to admit to ourselves that at some point in time, probably every single day, we don't pass that test. We don't live up to that standard. We fail it miserably. The scary part is, is that John isn't even close to done yet. Some of the most stern and harsh rebukes that John is going to give to the church, they're coming. <laughs> We're not there yet. But, I mean, he's going to be calling people antichrist. He's, I mean, he's got some strong language. He's going to say, if you sin, you're not worthy of being called a Christian. I mean, he's got some strong warnings that are coming our way. And so what he does here, is he pastorally thinks about all the people that make up the church that he loves and he holds dear, and he takes a moment to encourage them, to affirm them in their faith. 
to remind them who they belong to. I remember one time when I was in high school, I think I was in ninth grade, I was getting ready to go out with some of my friends, and I think it was probably one of the first times that, that my parents let me go out by myself, you know, with my, with my friends. And I remember that my dad, and my mom and dad both, but my dad in particular pulled me aside before I left the house, and he was, he was giving me a little bit of a talking to, just kind of reminding me uh, of some things before I left. And one thing that he said is he said, Nick, I want you to remember who you are and whose you are. You should remember who you are and whose you are. Anybody's parents ever tell them that? Am I the only one? A couple, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a gentle way of reminding me. It was dad's gentle way of reminding me that when I go out into the world, I not only represent my family, the fact that I belong to my mom and my dad, but I also represent my church family. A member of, I was a member of Bayside Baptist Church, and when I went out into the world, all the actions and everything that I did, it reflected my family, but it also reflected on my church family. But most importantly, I was to remember whose I was. The fact that when I went out into the world, I was representing my Savior, Jesus Christ. It was this gentle way of reminding me that, Nick, you don't belong to yourself. You don't belong to yourself. And what I did while I was out in the world it reflected the value that I placed on my identity as their son, but more importantly, as a son of God. Remember who you are and whose you are. John's doing the exact same thing here. John's doing the exact same thing. Perhaps as we've read through these verses about obeying God and taking our sin seriously and loving our brothers and sisters in the faith, uh, maybe you've been a little bit discouraged by some of this. Maybe you've been really honest with yourself and you say, you know, I don't pass all of these tests all the time. Perhaps some of you read these verses and it causes you to question the genuineness of your faith in Jesus. Perhaps when you read these verses, there's just kind of this darkness of doubt that kind of hovers over you and looms over you. Listen to what John says about those uh, who have their faith in Jesus. Listen to what John says about who you are and whose you are in Christ. He says you are God's children. You're loved. Your sins are forgiven in Christ. Right? There are those of you who are here who have been Christians for a long time. There are those of you who are here who have been Christians for longer than I've been alive. And you've been walking this Christian life however difficult it has been for you and you have a deep and an intimate knowledge that God is your Heavenly Father. There are those of you in here who are younger in age. Your faith is fairly young. Your faith in Jesus is growing, but it is strong. The Word of God abides in you. You fight against your temptation and against your sin. And with the power of the Holy Spirit and the help of God's Word, you, you defeat that temptation and that sin. Before John returns to the fight, he takes just a minute to encourage us we belong to Jesus. And what Jesus begins, He finishes in His perfect completion. And there is nothing that can stop Christ's work in our hearts. So let these things encourage you as you struggle in the world. Let these verses encourage you as you seek to apply them when you face temptation, when you face uh, you know, temptation to disobey God's word, when you face temptation to fall 
back into, sin, back into sin. Remember who you are. Remember who you belong to. Remember whose you are. That brings us to our final point this morning. John has encouraged us, and now we return to the fight. <laughs> point three, there's a pastoral exhortation. So we've seen a pastoral affirmation, now there's a pastoral exhortation. And the exhortation is this, don't love the world, or the things of the world. Don't love the world. My wife, Laura, used to tell me that I never smile when I preach. <laughs> I said, Nick, you don't smile when you preach. I would argue with her, and I would say, well, when one preaches about serious things, one doesn't smile, Right? Your, your tone has to convey the severity of the message. So you don't smile when you're preaching about serious things. And then she graciously pushed back on me and she said, yeah, but even when you're preaching about joyous and happy things, you still don't smile. Well, I think that maybe John's readers probably didn't really feel John smiling at them very much in the first part of the letter. And there in, chapter, or in verses 12 through 14, he takes a minute just to smile at him for a second. And then in verse 14, or in verse 15, it's back to his old countenance again. No more smiles, <clears throat> right? He's serious again. No, I'm just kind of kidding. But he's back, to the, he's back to these tests, right? And the exhortation here, he's, he's giving us uh, his first and probably the most forceful command that he's given so far in his letter. And the command here is don't love the world. Don't love the things of the world. As I mentioned before, this is one of the only times that this word love is used in a negative sense in this whole letter. Right, so the command here is pretty clear that we are not to set our love on the world nor the things of the world, but what in the world is the world? That's the question we have to answer. What does John mean by not loving the world? Well, there's two different ways that John uses this word world. The first way that he uses it is in reference to all of creation, including you and me. That all of us are part of the world that God created and God loves and God cherishes His creation, right? So you think of John 3.16, that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, right? So, so sometimes when John talks about the world, he's talking about all of creation, including you and me. Sometimes when John talks about the world, though, he doesn't mean it in that sense. He, he means it in the sense of the dark the darkness that's passing away, this idea that there is a part of creation, right, that has suffered the effects of the fall and that there's this part, there's this realm under which uh, Satan has control. And, and I think that's the term he's using here, this idea of the world where it's this evil part where God does not rule. That's what John's talking about here when he says don't love the world. Now, it can be really easy here to list all kinds of external things uh, that we can think of when we think of the world or the things of the world. Now, we can think of R-rated movies. right? We can think of things like por pornography. We can think of things like gambling and profanity-laced music and on and on and on. All these different external things. And if that's what John meant when he said, don't love the world or the things of the world, then obedience to this command is pretty straightforward. Don't watch R-rated movies, right? Don't, don't buy lottery tickets. Don't look at pornography. Uh, don't, uh, you know, don't listen to secular music because that doesn't belong to God. That's part of the world. Boom, we're done, right? I don't think that's exactly what John does here. He clarifies what he means. 
by the world and the things of the world. Look down at verse 16. He says, The things of the world are fleshly desires, desires of the eyes, and pride of life. Now those aren't external things. Those are internal things. When John says don't love the world or don't love the things of the world, he's not talking about stuff that's just out there. He's talking here about things that are right in here. Things that are inside each and every single one of us. They're not just things that we're supposed to avoid. They're things that have to be rooted out of our own hearts. The desires of the flesh. Martin Luther uh, describes these things by saying that the desires of the flesh are the pleasures with which I desire to indulge my flesh. Things such as adultery and fornication and gluttony and ease and laziness and sleep. These are desires of the flesh. Desires of the eyes. Right? Those, those little bitty parts of our bodies that are windows to the most susceptible of sins. The eyes, funny how in the Scripture there are these small parts of our bodies that are the most dangerous, our eyes and our tongue, right? These little bitty things, but they're windows into our, to what's in our heart. And the desires of the eyes, things like covetousness and greed and possessions and lust. You remember when Eve was in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 and, and the serpent came and tempted her with the fruit? What was Eve's response? She saw that the fruit was desirable to the eyes. It looked good. It looked like it was a good piece of fruit to eat. Right? That's what John's talking about here, these, these desires of the eyes. Lastly, the pride of life. One pastor I was reading defined this sin in this way. He said, the pride of life is that attitude of someone who refuses to rely on God as Father while he boasts in what he has seemingly gained by his own power. That's the pride of life. Saying it's, it's that self-dependent, self-glorifying attitude. It's the Tower of Babel inside every single one of us. You know what I mean by that? Let's build this tower to the heavens to make a name for ourselves. Look at what I did. Look at what I've accomplished. That's the pride of life. Paul warns us against this in Galatians when he says that we are only to boast in the cross of Christ. But why not? Why can't we love these things? Why can't we love the things of the world? After all, the world has a lot to offer us. And I'm not going to lie to you this morning that sin is a lot of fun. Sin is fun. And sin will fulfill you for a while. It, it will fulfill those desires of your heart, those twisted desires of your heart. But there are a couple of reasons why we don't need to love the world or the things of the world. And they're right here in this text. One, verse 15. Our love for the world is incompatible it's incompatible with our love for God. Look at verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Christian, you cannot simultaneously love God and love the things God opposes. It's impossible. You can't do it. Secondly, through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, this old world is passing away. 
And Jesus came and He lived and He died and He rose again so that you wouldn't have to pass away with it. There may be those of you who are here this morning, maybe you've never turned away from your sins, you've never put your faith in Jesus, and your life is marked by a love of this world and the things that are in this world. Perhaps you're even really happy. Perhaps you're even really successful. And maybe all of this Jesus stuff just kind of seems like nonsense to you. If that's you this morning, my friend, let this text be a warning to you. All that you hold dear and all that you're building your life upon is fading. It's fading away. It might satisfy you for a little bit, but it's not going to last. It's not going to last. The only hope you have is to put your trust in Christ. Put your faith in Him. Turn away from the sin. Forsake the world and, and trust in Jesus. Do it now. Do it now. He's the only thing that's worthy of your trust. Well, I want to close this morning by sharing with you the words of a probably a very familiar hymn to most of you here. It's a hymn that we've all sung before, perhaps so much that the significance of the words are kind of lost. Now, I've studied this passage this week, and as I've thought through this passage and remembered this hymn, I think this hymn is probably one of my new favorites. Here's what it says. It says, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Through death into life everlasting, He passed and we follow Him there. O'er us sin no more has dominion, for more than conquerors we are. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. And then the really familiar refrain. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn away from the things of the world. Don't put your hope or your trust in things that are fading. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Put your trust in Him. Build your life on Him. And when we look at Jesus and we remember the Gospel, we remember what He's done for us, all of a sudden, all that the world has to offer us just seems petty and small. So if you're struggling this morning with your love for the things of the world, turn your eyes on Jesus and look to Him and pray. Pray that God would allow the things of this world just to fade away and that the lust of the flesh and that the desire of the eyes and that the pride of life would not be what marks you. But what marks your identity is who you are in Christ and the love that we have for one another. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this Word that You've given to us, and I pray uh, that it would sink down deep into our hearts. And Father, we would obey it, and that we would love one another the way that You have loved us, that we would turn our affection to You, and that we would remember that we belong to You. And Father, I pray that because we belong to You, and because we're looking to Your face, that all that this world has to offer us would not be desirable to us.
but that we would desire you and your Son and your glory alone. We pray these things in your name. Amen.